everybody? Morning, Paul. Good morning. Great to see you today. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Matthew. Uh, brilliant to be together worshiping Jesus this morning. Right, let's crack on. We are doing a three-part series to start the year here at Gateway called Why We Are Different. And uh, these three really hold together. So if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to listen to last week's message online. And if you can't be here next week, we'll catch up online because these three things really do stick together. Why we are different. And I explained last week when we started that we're not talking about being different simply for the sake of being different. One of the phrases that we use here at Gateway is the gospel is offensive nothing else should be. The reality is that the call of the gospel, the demands that Jesus makes upon us, often can be offensive because he confronts us being our own bosses, and so that can feel offensive. But as a church, we don't want to be offensive, so we don't want to be offensive in the way we present ourselves or how we do stuff. And certainly this morning, what I'm saying, I don't want to be offensive myself, and uh, if that happens for my lack of care, I'm kind of upfront apologies. Um, What we're trying to do at Gateway is to be as faithful to the Word of God revealed to us in Scripture as we possibly can be, and uh, that's not always easy, and to help us, we have help in that because we have what believers throughout the ages around the world have understood. So there are parts of Scripture which for us, particularly in our context, our culture, our our point in history, we read and we think, wow, what on earth does that mean? And one of the best ways we can interpret and understand it is by looking and seeing what people in other places in the world and other times in history, how they've understood it, and what the church, if there's been kind of consistent teaching in the church around the world for 2,000 years, it's a pretty good idea that's probably pretty much on track in terms of how we should understand the Bible. So that's how we try and do things at Gateway. We try and be as faithful to this because we believe it is God speaking to us, and uh, we listen to our brothers and sisters throughout the ages as we do that. Now, last week I was speaking about money and why we're different when it comes to money. And that can be a controversial subject, but in many ways it's relatively simple. It's, I love preaching about that, preaching about generosity, what a great subject to talk about. This morning I want to talk about how men and women are meant to operate together in the church. And that is, in our context, probably much more difficult even than talking about money. And for this three weeks we're using Paul's first letter to Timothy as our guide. If you want to follow along It's about page 1,190 in the church Bibles. And uh, we're going to get a little bit later this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 2, which is probably the most controversial scripture in our context. Probably the most controversial passage in the Bible in in our context. And I can't remember the last time I taught on this on a Sunday morning. I'm not sure actually I have, even in the 11 years I've been here at Gateway. Part of that is because of... of, uh, time issues, that because this subject can feel so controversial, it's the sort of thing which is well handled if you've got a day or two days of kind of seminars, and you can be together, and you can teach through it, and talk together, and work it through with lots of time for questions and discussion, and obviously we don't, haven't got time for that this morning. Often when people talk to us about coming to church membership, I mean, normally this subject comes up, and in that context, there's space and opportunity for conversations as well. Sunday morning is a bit different, but I uh, feel that we ought to do this because it's something which is important to us, and we don't want to shy away from the things which are important to us. Now, this is what we're going to get to is controversial in our culture because it's talking about how men and women interact. And to be honest, lots of people have tried to get around this scripture, and certainly now, the cultural context, uh, 21st century Britain, lots of people try and get around it. And 
Some people just ignore it, say, well, basically this part of the scripture, it just doesn't really make sense in our culture. It must just apply back in the first century in Ephesus where Timothy was, whom Paul's writing to. And so we can kind of cut this bit of, we can cut these verses out of our Bible. The trouble is, if you do that with a verse and verses like this, you start doing that with all kinds of verses in the Bible. And in the end, you're not left with the Bible, you're left with a sieve. And the Bible is meant to be solid ground on which we stand, not a leaky sieve. So we're not going to start cutting verses out of the Bible. Something else which lots of churches do is, is to uh, just kind of dispense with uh, elders being those who have a particular responsibility to lead in the church. And First Timothy talks about that, and I'm planning next week to talk much more about eldership. But because eldership, as described here, is, is, is male, often it's easy just to... Don't, let's not talk about elders, we'll just talk about leadership. And if you have a generic leadership team, it's just men and women together, it doesn't matter who does what... And that seems much more straightforward. Now, that might be an answer, but again, it seems to be a bit of a cop-out, and it seems to reflect actually much more a kind of a modern approach to how we would do commercial life, how we do business. You just have a leadership team. And the church isn't a business. This is, Matt just helpfully reminded us as he was talking about how we do life together in life groups, that the church is a family. And the model of Eldership that's described here is elders as fathers, and so we'll need to unpack that a little bit and see why we don't want to. We want to be faithful to the Bible, so we still have elders. We don't just have kind of a generic leadership. Now, I've, in, over the years, been in countless conversations around these verses. I've done plenty of reading on all sides of the arguments. I've actually spent a huge amount of time the last few weeks preparing for this because it's so important. And I've got some real conviction about the things I want to share this morning, just to reference a couple of things which should particularly help me, so I can not have to quote them directly all the time, and so I'm quoting, but just so you know. Uh, Think, Think is a blog which I and Andrew Wilson and some others set up a few years ago, and we write on issues of theology and culture and that kind of stuff. But Andrew Wilson also each year runs a Think conference looking at a particular topic, and last summer that subject was on complementarity, and I was there, and since then we've been having an ongoing discussion as an eldership team about what we believe about complementarity, how men and women are to operate together. And it was really being at that conference last summer, which at that point I thought I ought to do a three-week series looking at why we're different as a church. So this series kind of flows out of that conference. And then uh, a commentary by Robert Yarborough on the letters to Timothy doesn't say anything new in that commentary, but just sets it out in a particularly helpful way, I think, and I'll be quoting him from him a couple of times, but I won't be saying at this point I'm quoting from because that would get tedious. Right, let's read. We're actually going to start not in 1 Timothy 2, but 1 Timothy chapter 5, and the verses will appear on the screen. You can follow along in your Bibles as well. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Now, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his friend Timothy, and Timothy's in a city called Ephesus, helping to shape a church there. And Paul is saying to Timothy, this is how you, Timothy, are to do things as you seek to serve this church, and this is how you're to help to get the church doing things. And the model is church as family. And our roles as men and women in the church are to be understood in family terms. That's what he says here. 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 to 2. Now that's rather different from how we think 
out in the world. In the world, when it comes to how men and women are to relate to one another, we think of one another perhaps as colleagues or co-workers or maybe as potential sexual partners or perhaps as competitors, maybe even predators when things have gone wrong. And the narrative of the past 50 years when it comes to how men and women relate to one another has been something like this, that there is no essential differences between male and female but women have always been oppressed by men. That's kind of the cultural narrative with which, within which we operate today in 21st century Britain. No essential differences between men and women, but women have always been oppressed by men. Now, what I want to argue this morning is that the biblical vision, what Paul sets out for his friend Timothy, and what we see out throughout Scripture, actually, is better. It's a better vision. It's better than an oppressive patriarchy, but it's also better than feminism. And even saying that is a controversial thing to say in our culture, but I think the biblical vision is better than either of those options. Right, let's get into it. First thing, men and women are different. Now, that should be obvious, and for most normal people, that is obvious. Men and women are different. Obvious. But there is a strong current in our society which would deny it and would say that really there are no fundamental differences between men and women, except perhaps a few unfortunate biological ones. The differences between men and women are purely cultural, and the more equal we get, the fewer differences there will be between us. And that seems to make sense. The more equality that there is, the fewer differences there will be between men and women. Fascinatingly, the latest psychological research seems to be showing that that is actually wrong. Last September, there was an article in the Times titled The Patriarchy Paradox, How Equality Reinforces Stereotypes. And this was reporting on a couple of pieces of research which have been done in dozens of countries and involved tens of thousands of people. And this research is showing that the more gender equality there is in a country the more difference there is in the way that men and women think, which is completely opposite to how it should be. The more women there are in the workforce, the more women there are in parliaments, the more women there are in education, the more that men and women differ in their psychology. Now, psychologists measure personality according to the big five personality traits. Should be a picture up now, Dale, whoever's on the words. Uh, Chris. Uh, openness, extroversion, agreeableness, conscientiousness, and neuroticism. Now, those, those personality traits always overlap between men and women, but in different societies, they overlap more or less. So in China, the researchers found, which has relatively low gender parity, relatively low gender equality, personality overlap on those five traits is 84%. In the Netherlands, which is one of the most gender-equal societies in the world, personality overlap between men and women was 61%. There's this still a big overlap, but there's more difference in how men and women think in Holland than there is between how men and women's personalities are in China. One of the researchers from Gothenburg University in Sweden says, it seems that as gender equality increases, as countries become more progressive, men and women gravitate towards traditional gender norms. Why is this happening? I really don't know. Now, what that means practically is that in China, 
all the young women are trying to become engineers, which is a stereotypically male role, whereas in Sweden, one of the most equal countries in the world, practically all nurses are women, and very few women are trying to become engineers. Why is that? What's going on? Now, it's fascinating just as a piece of research, but what's the point? Simply trying to illustrate that men and women are different. And actually, what this research shows, encouragingly, is that the more equality, the more freedom there is, the more those differences between men and women are able to be expressed. Now, in the church, which is meant to function as a healthy family, it's in the church that there should be the most freedom for us all to express who we are. What the gospel brings us into is human flourishing as men and women. And so as men and women in the church, we should experience a freedom which allows our differences to be expressed. Now, let's dig into this a little bit further. Some differences between men and women are relative. Take, for example, military ability. So imagine that black line is the line which you'd have to pass in order to be admitted to the Royal Marines. The Royal Marines base here in Paul. Uh, who gets to be a Royal Marine? Now, blue line, there are always going to be more men with the ability to qualify as Royal Marines than will be women. Most men could not qualify as Royal Marines because they lack the sufficient physical and mental toughness to get in. We've all seen the advert on TV, 99.9% .9 need not apply. The whole point is it's meant to be super elite. Most people haven't got the physical and mental toughness to pass. But there's always going to be more men who have the physical and mental attributes to get through marine selection. But there probably are women who also could pass marine selection. And now the government, in its wisdom, has opened up serving in frontline units to women. And the first woman is currently going through the process of trying to get into the marines. Whether you think the Marines will be improved as a fighting force with women in its ranks is, a, is another matter. The reality is that there are some women who possess the attributes which are needed to be a Royal Marine, I'm sure. That's a relative difference between the sexes. But some differences between the sexes are absolute. And the obvious one is when it comes to reproduction. So this is an absolute difference. Not all women are mothers, but 100% of mothers are women. That's an absolute difference between men and women. So when it comes to how family life in the church works, when we say, when somebody comes along and wants to become a member, and they say, have you got any female elders? And we say, no, we don't have female elders. In the eyes of our culture, that seems ridiculous. It seems sexist. It seems patriarchal. It seems all those negative words that we throw around. But if you think in terms of family, it's a bit like saying we don't have male mothers. And that makes much more sense because there are no male mothers. It's an absolute difference. And if you understand eldership and family terms, this all begins to make more sense. And today and next week, I'm hoping to un unpack this. Here's a picture of my uh, family. Not that picture. That's not my baby. Not my wife. Next one. Nope. That one. Here's a picture of my parents' golden wedding anniversary last Summer, look how brown the grass was last June, that wonderful summer. Uh, me and Grace and our four daughters and my brother and his wife Emma and their one son and two daughters. We've done much better producing granddaughters and grandsons for my parents and my mum and dad. Now, amongst us, there are some functions that are interchangeable. I mean, we're all hosiers for a start, so we're all the same in that sense. We're all hosiers, part of the hosier family. And on the day when we were together... 
around at my brother's house, there was interchangeability in terms of what we did. Now, I think actually things probably fell into a fairly, fairly stereotypical role, but it ended up being my sister-in-law, Emma, who was making the salads, my brother, David, who's on the barbecue. But, and this might be the most controversial thing I say all day, there is no reason why women cannot barbecue as well or better than men. There's nothing written into our DNA or anything else which means that women cannot barbecue, so that's just a kind of a stereotypical thing that men tend to flip the burgers. My brother can make a salad as well as Emma can, and I'm sure Emma could barbecue probably better than my brother can. So there's nothing to do with sex, that's just a, a stereotypical thing. So interchangeability of function, but there's not an interchangeability of person. So when David married Emma, Emma became my sister. She didn't become my wife. And I will always be my mum's son. I'm never going to become my son's, my mum's father. And I can't be my daughter's sister. I'm always going to be their dad. There's an interchangeability in terms of function, but there's no interchangeability when it comes to the persons. We are mums and dads, brothers and sisters, and those things don't shift. Men and women are different, and the difference is glorious. It's better that way. Second thing. Men and women are complementary. Now, complementarity is when two different things improve or emphasize each other's qualities. They make the other thing better. An example of this would be in terms of how we think about, uh, understand music, and then how we understand ourselves as male and female. So, in terms of music, uh, Sameness is when there'd be a song, a plain song, when it's just a kind of a one-note song. That's sameness. Otherness is when you have different instruments playing, but they're not playing together. And that's the cacophony, and that's not particularly pleasant to listen to. Complementarity is where you've got harmony. It's where the guitar and the keyboard and the drums are all working together, and actually they sound better because they're working together. The keys sound better because there's a guitar there as well. The bass sounds better because there's drums there as well. The whole thing works together. That's harmony. Now, when it comes to sex, we see something similar. Sameness is when we say male equals female. There's no difference. And what you get then is not glorious and multicolored. It's just a monotone. Otherness is when you say it's male versus female, that we're locked in kind of eternal battle of the sexes. And that's not beautiful either. Complementarity, what is beautiful, what is good, what is glorious, is when we see male and female improving and emphasizing one another's qualities. And this complementarity is cosmic. It's written throughout the universe. We see this in the story of creation, that God creates light and he creates darkness. There's a complementarity between the two. God creates the sky and he creates birds to inhabit the sky. God creates the land, and he creates livestock to inhabit the land. God creates the sea, and he creates fish to inhabit the sea. He creates the sun to govern the day, and he creates the moon to govern the night. There's a, a harmony, a balance, a complementarity between these things, which make the world so much more beautiful, so much more wonderful than it would otherwise be. If there was just sky and no birds, no. If it was just sea and no fish, no. If it was just sun or just moon, no. It's the complementarity of the two which make the thing beautiful. And then he creates the man and the woman, and he creates fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. That 
complementarity is cosmic and it is glorious. And so we need to work out our complementarity because that's how we're going to flourish as human beings. So men and women are different. Second thing, men and women are complementary. Third thing, and the big thing, complementarity in the church. Now, as I've said, 1 Timothy, Paul's first letter to Timothy, is probably the clearest blueprint we have in the Bible for how a local church should operate, what a congregation like this should look like. And it says a lot about male and female roles and responsibilities. And family is the model. Mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters. But 1 Timothy chapter 2 probably is the most controversial passage in the Bible. But we need to see that it's so controversial just in our culture. And we need to have some humility here because we kind of bring our culture to the Bible and where it disagrees with our culture, we say, this is crazy. And we're very blind to how actually every culture is offended by the gospel at some point, just at different points from where we're offended probably. So in many cultures, Luke 6, which is where I started last Sunday when talking about how we're different, that probably is the most controversial scripture. In many cultures, many cultures are on a shame cultures. Those are cultures where if somebody shames you in some way, you have to get your honor back. And the way that you get your honor back is by imposing yourself over the other person. And then Jesus says in Luke 6, to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. Now, in most cultures, that is utterly outrageous because If you're shamed by somebody cursing you or by somebody slapping you, the way that you get your honor back is by cursing them more or by hitting them harder. That's how you regain your honor. And that just makes complete sense in an honor-shame culture. That's just the way that you think. Somebody disgraces me, I'm going to get my honor back, and the way I get my honor back is by putting them down. And then Jesus says, don't do that, do the opposite. Now, for us, what Jesus says here doesn't sound nearly as controversial as it should do. And the reason for that is because Christianity has so permeated our culture, and this is one of the legacies of that that still remains, we kind of know in British culture that, hey, you're not supposed to try and get revenge. You're not supposed to get your own back. If somebody does something to you, really, you just need to leave it to the authorities to sort out. And if you pursue this path, it's going to end in disaster. You end up in kind of blood feuds where generation after generation are killing one another. We don't do that. The reason why we think that is because Christianity has so permeated our culture. But in many cultures, this would be the most shocking thing which could possibly be said. Now, for us, because of our culture, what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 is probably the most shocking, controversial thing that could be said. Let's read it. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time, and for this purpose I was appointed a herald, an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. What Paul is telling Timothy here is this is how a local church is to function, and these are the things which all of us, men and women, are to do. 
We're to pray, and we're to pray for those in authority. And this is a great reminder to us here and now in January 2019 in the UK with all the political chaos going on. It's very easy for us to just get completely bored of the whole thing or become very dismissive of politicians or to pick sides and be as disagreeable as everybody else. And what the Scripture says to us is to pray. And so we should pray. We should pray for our local MPs. We should pray for Connor Burns and Robert Sims and Tobias Elwood and other local MPs. And we should pray for Jeremy Corbyn and we should pray for Theresa May because that's what Scripture tells us to do. And we're to believe the truth about who God is. And we're to recognize who Jesus is. And we're to believe and apply the gospel because it is true. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, this is the application for you. The gospel about Jesus is good news and it's true. And what he wants for you is to come into relationship with him. Now, some of that's challenging but it's not too controversial. Verse 8, Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Verses 1 to 7 set out what we should do Verses 8 to 10 begin to tell us how we should do it. Notice the key joining word. Verses 1 to 7, this is what you're to do. Verse 8, therefore. Because of these things, therefore, do this. Do it this way. And what are we to do? We're to pray. We're to actually pray. Not just go through the motions. A nice little God bless you, God bless me kind of tick box prayer. And I really pray. And all should pray. Men and women pray. There's a particular warning that Paul gives Timothy for the men here. Because men, in terms of the relative difference between men and women, men are more prone to having a punch-up. More men tend to be more physically aggressive. And really what Paul's saying here to Timothy is, men, you can't pray if you're acting in the worst way that men sometimes do. You can't fight each other and expect God to hear your prayers. You can't go around lamping people and then lift up your hands to God. No, you need to lift up holy hands to God. Don't be the worst that men sometimes can be. And then there's a particular warning to the women, who, in terms of the relative difference between men and women, are perhaps more prone to being distracted by physical appearance. And so Paul's saying to Timothy, women, you can't pray if you're acting in the worst way that women sometimes do. You can't be distracted by how you or somebody else is looking and expect God to hear your prayers. Now, is it that all women are vain? No. Are some men vain? Definitely. But relatively, men are more likely to get into a fight than women, and relatively, women are often more concerned about appearance than men are. Just Look at the magazine racks where women's magazines compared to men's are still overwhelmingly concerned with physical appearance. It's not that it would be fine for women to pray with anger and disputing, and it wouldn't be fine for a man to pray while he's busy taking selfies of himself to post on Instagram. The point is that men and women are complementary, and we're meant to bring out the best qualities in one another. But our tendencies to sin can mess that up. Our worship, our prayer can be sabotaged if we do the worst things that men and women tend to do. 
And certainly I've experienced that. I've been in worship times with men who are so angry and potentially physically threatening that it's very difficult to pray. And I've also been in worship settings of women who are so distracted by their and other people's physical appearance, it's distracting for everybody else and it's difficult to pray. What we're meant to do is complement one another and bring out our best qualities. A great example of that was the worship night we had a couple of weeks ago here, where complementarity was evidence. Couldn't tell in the band really who was leading. Gemma led, and then Nathaniel led, and then John led, and then Hannah led, and people from the congregation led, and men and women led, and they're different ways, and there was a complementary beauty and glory about that. That's how it's meant to be. Now, verse 11, this is where it starts to get really tricky. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Now, we can read that, and because of what our culture teaches us, we do tend to read this as a real put-down of women, that Paul's kind of squashing women down. Another way that you can read it, and I think the way it's meant to be read, is that what Paul is saying to Timothy is women must be learners. Women must be learners. In the story of the first church in Acts 2, which we looked at last year, Acts 2.42, it says that all of them, men and women, were devoted to the teaching. And I think Paul is urging Timothy to help the women in Ephesus to also be devoted to the teaching. If women are to worship right, they need to learn. See to it, Timothy, that the woman who seeks to learn does so. Now, how is a woman to learn then? Paul says, in quietness. Now, again, because of our culture, the way that we tend to read this is that Paul's saying, women, shut up! And it really doesn't mean that. What Paul, I think, is saying here is something much more like, Timothy, help the women to find the headspace to learn. Help the women not to be distracted so they can learn. And a great parallel example of this is the story of Jesus in the home of Mary and Martha in Luke 10. It says, Martha had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha, her sister, was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. What Jesus said to Martha was, don't be distracted. Be more like your sister Mary. Sit and learn. And Paul's saying the same thing to Timothy about the women in Ephesus. Help the women to learn without distraction. But then the verse also says they need to learn in full submission. What about that? Because, again, with the way that we tend to read this, because of what our culture teaches us, we think that Paul is saying, every woman must do what every man tells her to do. No. Biblically speaking, submission is a positive thing when it means being obedient to God and being obedient to his word. And that is how women are to worship. So really, Paul is saying something like this to Timothy. Timothy, let a woman at worship concentrate quietly on her calling as a disciple to learn, fully intent on what God has to teach her. Now, some application, real application for us in this. I think when it comes to learning about our faith, I think the reality is that with the men, often there can be something of a reluctance to really get to grips with learning because Relatively, men tend to be a little bit more lazy. I'm sure if we did a survey about men and women who's reading Christian books and stuff in this room, probably there'd be more women doing a bit more reading and study than the men. That's just how it tends to be. And so 
the encouragement to the men would be, men, muscle up on your theology. Read something decent, get online, download Tim Keller and D.A. Carson, muscle up on theology. Don't be lazy about it, be diligent. But the particular application here is to women, and it's the same exhortation. Women of Gateway Church, muscle up on your theology. Read some decent stuff. Get online. Download D.A. Carson and Tim Keller. Learn some stuff. Women tend to do more study, more reading, but often so-called Christian books for women tend to be at the kind of end of, this is how to be a better wife, this is how to be a better mum, this is how to keep a better home. And all those things are commendable, but if you muscle up on theology, you'll work all that stuff out as well, as well as just being spiritually stronger. So women, I'd encourage you to ditch some of the kind of just how to be a better mum and wife, how to have a nicer house. Get your teeth into something which is a bit more meaty and muscle up. It's what the church needs. Verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now a way to paraphrase that would be something like this. I do not want that woman, the woman who's learning, to teach and exercise oversight over a man. That's your job as pastoral leader, Timothy, as well as the men whom you vet and appoint. But as I said, to have a quiet space for learning preserved for when she is at worship. Now, why does Paul say that? Well, plan to speak more about that next week when we talk more about eldership. But he begins to give the answer in the next couple of verses. And this is Tricky stuff for us to get our heads around, so hope uh, you can follow along. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. What Paul is doing here is taking Timothy back to the account of creation in Genesis chapter 2. And in that story of the creation of all things, there's a story about how the human race came to be. And that story is that God took dust of the earth and he molded it together and breathed life into it, and that became Adam, the first man. And Adam was on his own. The rest of the cosmos was complementary. There was the sky and the birds. There was the ocean and the fish, and all the animals were male and female. But Adam was just a oneness, just on his own, and that wasn't good. And so God took Eve from Adam, and now you have male and female. You have the man and the woman. You have these two people who are the same because they're both humans made it in the image of God, but they're also different. They're no longer, they're not interchangeable, they're complementary, and God looks and says it's very good. Now, in Ephesus, which is the place where Timothy is and Paul's writing to, some people are teaching a rejection of the good things that God has made. In uh, 1 Timothy 4, a few verses down, Paul says this, these people forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. What Paul is doing here is reaffirming the goodness of creation. Some people are saying that you shouldn't get married because somehow sex and marriage are sort of unholy and dirty. And Paul says, no, they're good. They're given to us as God's gift. And some people are saying, you shouldn't eat that because somehow that will pollute you and it's not such a good food and not such a godly food. And Paul says, no, you eat whatever you like because God's given it to you as a gift. If you receive it with faith, it's his gift to you. Enjoy the created things. And he is affirming the creation order. 
a complementary, not an interchangeable order, relationship between men and women. And he says, Adam was formed first, that he wasn't deceived first, but Adam was the one who is responsible, is responsible for human sin. Sin is reckoned to Adam, not to Eve. Paul makes this very clear in his first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. For since death came through a man, through Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, Jesus Christ. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Who's responsible for the mess of the world? It's not Eve, it's Adam. Even though Eve was the one who was deceived first. Why? Because Adam was formed first, and so Adam had responsibility to prevent his wife from being deceived. And so it's like Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, you and the elders you appoint lead in the way you are meant to. Lead in the good way of the creation, not in the bad way of the fall. That's how things are meant to be. And then last verse we're going to look at, another tricky verse, verse 15. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now this verse has been asked, what on earth does that mean? Women will be saved through childbearing. There's thousands of different explanations given. Let me give what I think is the most, makes most sense in the context of the whole letter. At Ephesus, this church where Timothy was and Paul was writing to, there is false teaching going on which was saying, reject the good things that God has made. Reject marriage, reject certain kinds of food, all this kind of stuff. And what Paul is saying here is that Normal female activity is good. Normal female activity is actually a means of grace. The the things that God made women with the capability to do are good things. And he relates that particularly to childbearing. And it's not that every woman will be a mother, but no Christian woman should reject her createdness. And the good news, the good news of the gospel is that Christ Jesus has overturned the effects of the fall upon us. When Adam and Eve were deceived and led into sin, God pronounced a curse upon Adam, upon the earth, and also upon the woman. God said this, Genesis 3.16, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. What happened because of the entry of sin into the world was that family life, which is meant to be the place where we human beings know the most freedom, the most joy, the most security, family life actually became what is often a threatening place, especially for women. We all know the stories. We know the statistics. Some of you have experienced it personally. How often through the ages, women in particular have found that family hasn't been a place of security and liberty and freedom. It's actually been a place of oppression and abuse. It becomes a threatening place. And even the whole concept of motherhood can be threatening. The terrifying physical implications of carrying and bearing a child and the risks of bringing a child into the world and being responsible for a helpless infant, all those things can look utterly threatening and terrifying But because Jesus has broken the power of the curse, that makes it possible for things to be different. And I think what Paul is saying here to these women in Ephesus, who are perhaps wanting to overthrow the created order, is, look, 
Women, don't be fearful. Being a mother is not to be feared. It's good. And that applies to literal, physical motherhood. It also applies to spiritual motherhood. Because that's how Paul talks about women in this book, in this letter, about mothers and about fathers. Something not to be feared, it's something to be embraced. And in the household of the church, in the family of the church, things are meant to be different from how they are in the world. We are called to be different. The church is meant to be an outpost of heaven. We're meant to do things differently here. And that means we're to exist in complementary relationships where we all flourish. And we flourish when we find our place as brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. And what the church is to be like is, as Paul says to these women in Ephesus, it's to be a place of faith and of love and of holiness. And that's glorious. It's very different from the model and the pattern of the world. It's different from an oppressive patriarchy, and it's different from a radical feminism. It's something which is so much better. It's a place where we're not competing with one another and opposing one another. It's not a place where we're just looking for sameness, and it's not a place where we're just looking for opposition. No, we're looking for harmony and complementarity because Jesus has made us one. And in that place of freedom and unity, we're able to express our glorious difference as men and women too. It's good news. We're going to take communion just now, and communion is a meal of unity. It's communion. It's where you commune with God and with one another. And as we come to take communion, if you're a follower of Jesus and you can do this, you can come and come to Jesus and the bread and the wine and take it in faith. As we do that, let's focus on our Union with Christ Jesus and our union through him with one another. That if you're a Christian, you are joined to Christ and you're joined to his family. You're called to be a brother, a sister in the household of God. And we can bring to Jesus our fears and our anxieties and allow him to come. And we can bring to Jesus our distractions and our arrogance and we can find peace and learn what it is to be disciples We can come to Jesus and give thanks that he's made us a man. He's made you a woman, and that's good. And he wants you to express that and celebrate it. We can celebrate what it is to be family, the people of God, called to know Christ, and called to live in a way together that's a witness to the world, which so desperately needs to see a better way of living. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you have overturned the curse of the fall. Thank you that because of what you've done, we can know relationship with God and we can know relationship with one another and uh, change the whole dynamics of how that happens. And I pray for us here at Gateway, Lord. I pray that you would help us to work these things out. I pray you'd help us to be obedient to your word, even when it seems challenging. I pray you'd help us to understand and apply it correctly as we should do. And I ask, Lord, that as men and women here, we would flourish in the fullness of what you intend for us. I pray that we would model and display something in church life as family together, which is a witness to the world of a better way to live. I pray for a health here amongst us. I pray for family life, which is full of health. Mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters living and loving and serving together. In the name of Jesus, I ask it. Amen. Amen. Let's uh, respond in worship and then we'll... Come and take the bread and the wine together as well.
this is 